Welcome to the LYC Podcast. We are a youth community that believes in loving people and meeting them where they are. Our desire is that through this message, God's love for you is confirmed, your hope in Jesus is renewed, and your faith is awakened. It doesn't have a stereo. Like, it has like an old cassette player. Do you guys know what cassettes are? Yep. Hey, okay, all right. Whoa, well-versed in history, everybody. This is awesome. The car has a cassette player. It doesn't have Bluetooth or anything, so I haven't been listening to music in my car. And it's been unique just to sit in silence. And I'm a talker. I kind of do it for a living, you know? Like, I talk a lot. I don't really like silence. And the Lord's been inviting me into being quiet with him. And I just think, man, I want every day to be marked by the presence of God. So every day I'm going to push myself to make space for the presence of God to interrupt my life and invite me into a deeper relationship. And that's what we get to do this weekend, right? We get to make space for an encounter, for a divine interruption, for God to come and speak to you. Let me just encourage you. Do you know know that an hour out in nature starts to rewire your brain from the decay of being on a cell phone? Do you know that? You know, three days in nature can literally be like a brain detox I mean, I know we're going to get kind of nerdy here, but that's the truth. You have an opportunity right now. I know that you're supposed to have your phones confiscated. This is not just a consequence. This is an opportunity. Take every chance you get when you're walking. Think on the Lord. Make space for God. Get caught up in the stillness, in the silence. Hear, hear the leaves rustling. And like, be like, I invite you into this. One of the reasons I love my wife, she's, like I always say, my wife's idea of a vacation is like adventuring in nature. My idea of a vacation is literally like renting a chair by a pool and turning into a raisin. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have different ideas of what we enjoy. I'm like, sunny, get to the water. She's like, let's go to the mountains, right? She's like, I want to hunt for beauty in nature. And I'm like, I want to hunt for deals on Amazon while I'm sitting in a chair turning into a raisin. That's like my idea of fun. But I love this about my wife. Every time we're walking and the sun, you know, like when the sun cuts through like the yellow trees, she'll be like, stop, Mitch, look at the beauty. Look at God's rays. Look at what God's doing. He's giving you a gift. And I used to make, I mean, I still make fun. I'm kind of making fun of her right now but I actually admire it. Like she'll go, stop, look, do you see that? That's a gift from God, that's God showing you something. Look at the way the sky is, look at the clouds, look at the beauty, listen, do you hear nature? She captures, she makes moments meaningful. And I just think that's what we're supposed to do. We serve the God that breathed all of this into existence and yet knows you and wants a relationship with you. And when we take moments to stop and acknowledge his handiwork, his creation, we take it in, we allow it to affect us a little bit. It's like an invitation into a deeper intimacy with God. And so this weekend we're talking about essential Christianity, getting back to the basics, 
forming a resilient faith in Jesus that will withstand the pressures, the temptations, the circumstances that we will surely face in life. God interrupts us, encounters us, and it's in that place that he invites us into a discipleship, into being his disciples, apprentices of him, learning and practicing his ways for the renewal of all things. He invites us into this relationship, and I believe that it is within this relationship that he forms us and counterforms us from the ways of culture. And I, I have found that throughout the text, there are four primary ways I see God shaping his people. Through narrative, which is just a fancy word for story. God shapes us through story, through practices, what we do, through relationships, relationship with him, relationship with others, relationship with the world, and through mission. God wants to shape you. He wants to form you. He wants to mold you. When we come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, let me remind you, what you're saying is, I want my life to be led by you. I want to look like you. I want to live like you. I want to be made in your image. So today I want to talk to you that you are formed by story. You're formed by story. Culture has a way. Culture simply means a group's way. Their stories that they believe, the things that they do, the way they interact with people, the vision and mission for their life. Culture has a way. And whether you like it or not, you were dropped into a moment of time that carries a culture. Before you were disciples of Jesus, you were disciples of culture. You were shaped. You were taught. You were formed. Our culture has a way. The best way when I think of culture, I, I think back, how many seventh graders are here? No one's excited to be a seventh grader. It's okay, I understand. There's like five of you. When you go into seventh grade, it's your first time where you experience being in different classes, going to a different school, being with different students. It's like the convergence of a sixth grade for you. Okay, see, in the Northwest, see, here we go. I'm already, in the Northwest, we do seventh, middle school starts in seventh grade, guys. How many sixth, do we have sixth graders here? Okay, sixth graders. I'm gonna talk to you now. Seven, can you guys be a little, who's a sixth grader in this room? Just, you can yell, let's yell. Let's get a little, yeah, woo, okay, all right. We're working on it, guys, we're gonna, Here's the deal, guys. We're going to get there. By the end of the night, we're going to be screaming at each other. It's going to be fun. Sixth grade, beginning of middle school, all of a sudden, it's the convergence of all of these elementary schools coming together in our new class, and teachers have signs everywhere. There's anti-bullying posters everywhere, and you walk into a room, and there's a poster of an eagle that says, teamwork makes you fly and soar, and it shapes you, and you have to figure out how you're going to survive physical education with older students, and then somehow put your thinking cap back on and make it through math, and what you're actually experiencing is learning how to adapt to the 
culture of that classroom. And let me tell you something, middle school is a lot like life. And we just fail as adults to remember that what we're doing is we're being shaped by the way things are. And so I wanna briefly just tell you the story that you have been handed from culture. The world is natural. The world is natural, meaning that everything that happens can be reduced by some sort of scientific explanation. And if it can't, then it's simply unknowable, but everything is natural. And let me remind you, we serve a supernatural God, so already you're in tension there. The, the story that you've been handed is that everything can be reduced scientifically. And when it can't, well, that's just your best assumption. Therefore, you must test everything. You must test everything. In fact, part of what our education system does is teaches you how to subtly distrust and test everything in your life. Your relationships, your family, mathematics, like you're, you're constantly taught how to test, test, test. The world teaches us that you are capable of reaching perfection. They promote this through, you know, I mean, think about, think about our obsession with American Idol, right? Or was at one point there was an obsession with American Idol. I mean, I'm a Kelly Clarkson fan, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm an OG fan. We have this obsession with like young people being discovered. And if you do the right things, you can actually be discovered, be known, be seen but it's up to you to create this identity. It's up to you to make your life work. It's up to you to save yourself. We're told a story that all things are equal. Every idea is equal. You wanna know why we struggle with evangelism? We struggle with evangelism because we think all, we are taught that all ways are good. We serve Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way, and that puts you at odds with the story that you've been given. All of a sudden, even believing Jesus becomes offensive. All things are equal. You need to find yourself, and the reality is, is that we're sold a story that puts you in the position of having a full-time job, of being a brand manager over your own life. Curating every single moment, making sure it's posted, the caption is great, it gets enough likes and engagement on TikTok or Instagram or whatever you guys are doing these days. Like, that's a lot of pressure. You gotta figure out who you are and then you gotta put it on display and have it validated by the world. It's a lot of pressure. And we're all captured by this. It wasn't by choice we were raised into this. So before we were disciples of Jesus, we were disciples of this. Jesus interrupts our lives, invites us into discipleship so that he can form us into his image by deconstructing the way culture has formed us. If you want life, you're going to have to lose your life. The way of life looks like picking up your cross. I get to determine your identity, not you. This is so counter to what we're sold by our culture. And we have to embrace this. Jesus wants to give you a more profound 
story. One of the most beautiful things about the God that we serve is that he put flesh on and engaged with humanity. This means that he understands, empathizes, cares for, and has experienced and felt the very same things you have experienced and felt. We do not serve a God who is distant from the very experiences that we've gone through. Loss, pain, betrayal, pressure, people speaking ill of him. He actually knows what it feels like to walk into a room and hear the whispers over there of someone saying something mean about him. Losing close friends, having family betray him. Do you know that Jesus' own brother didn't even follow him till after he was raised from the dead? Family, struggle, hardship, homelessness, weariness, abandonment. The beautiful thing about God is that he interrupts our very story. Because even though we, we've been given a story from culture and we've written our own stories and Jesus meets us in the midst of both. The beautiful thing of the, the verse that we are kind of fixing this weekend on of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand is he says this in the midst of a powerful unified, dominant culture to a group of individuals who had very real lives. So Jesus, like he did, is doing the same to us, meeting us in the midst of our Western culture, in our very story, right here. Far too often, I think we come in these kind of in environments and share these kind of moments and we turn to God like we have moments like yesterday where Lord Jesus, I repent and we think what Jesus wants to do is forget that our history exists. Like Jesus wants to go, I don't even want to see your past. No, Jesus wants to redeem your past. He's not intimidated by your story. In fact, the whole of Christianity is making oneself known to God, learning the safety and the beauty that comes when you come before Jesus saying, here I am, here's my story, this is me, this is what I'm going through. When you choose to do this, you actually receive the grace that's available that we serve a God who looks at the pain, the brokenness, the struggle of our lives, and he doesn't get off of his seat. He's not intimidated. He's not afraid. He's not ashamed. He doesn't belittle you. In fact, he comes towards you and he cares for you and he nurtures you. If we treat Christianity as a religion where we get saved and somehow we're supposed to believe that God just magically erases all of our past as though it didn't ever happen to us, well, that's not very empathetic. That's not very loving. He actually wants to work in the mess of our lives and redeem it and restore it. Give us his love in that place. God wants to meet us in the midst of our story so that he can write our futures. He looks at your life and says, what you've been through, let me redeem it. Give authority to it and to you that you can lead others, that you can love others, that you can be stirred and receive part of my heart for this broken world.
Let me make your trial a testimony. And I don't mean that and say that lightly. Like, I really believe this. Some of you have stories here. And maybe you came this weekend to be like, I want to escape that story. And this might not be the most encouraging word, but I actually think Jesus wants to meet you in that story because story is the most compelling thing to the human mind. Sociologists and scientists say that we're meaning-making machines. And it works because they all start with the letter M, right? Meaning-making machines. We make meaning out of the mundane. We're all the main character in our story, right? As we're writing it. How do we make meaning? We tell stories. You know that your past is just your best retelling of your story? Like, if I asked you, you what did you do yesterday? You're, you're going you're gonna to tell me your best attempt at what you did yesterday. Whether that, uh, how, how much exaggeration takes place, how you interpret. Uh, our pasts are just our best retellings of our story. Did you know that the way that you engage right now in your very present is shaped by the way that you tell your history? Your, your brain has one job. It's to keep you alive. And as far as I can tell, everyone is still alive in this room. So your brain is doing a great job. But the way your brain keeps you alive is by deeming things helpful or harmful. And then it wants to become more and more efficient. So if it keeps you alive, then it's on a quest to become more efficient. And the way that it does this is by rather than engaging with every new stimulus that comes in, every new experience, it just goes, this reminds me of this story. So that story that you had in second grade carries some weight because it might shape how you engage in seventh, eighth, ninth, high school, marriage. Your brain just retells those stories and replays it, which is why we must get honest with our stories and be okay with repentance that we would come before God and say, this is my story. Help me tell it the way you see it. Help me tell it with a lens of redemption and renewal and restoration so that I don't just walk around on autopilot making decisions that I don't even really want to make. Help me change. The way we change is inviting God into the whole of our lives that he would shape and tell our story that he's the author and perfecter of our faith, which means in order for him to write us the future that he has, we have to give him our story. We have to give him all that we are. I am the oldest of two, uh, three brothers. So I have two younger brothers. One of the most profound kind of early on stories that I carry is I remember my dad saying, Mitch, you have to be an example to your younger brothers. There was a responsibility that I had. I had to live a certain kind of way. I had to put on display the right way to live so that my brothers would follow. So all of a sudden, the way I do things became very, very important to me. The way I engaged with life was there's a right way to do it. And there's a pressure that I took on in my life. If I fail, if I fall short, well, then I'm responsible for the failings and shortcomings of my brother and my family. So I can't, I refuse to fail. I had a fear of failure because of a story and an exchange. When I was in seventh grade, 
I uh, came to the conclusion that I was ready to get married, you know? I, I would say, any fellas here think they're ready to get married? And then just be like, but I'm not going to do that. Do not say yes to that. I was in seventh grade. I, I believed that I was, I was like, I was ready, right? I was about this height. I hit my first growth spurt. I've never had a second one. And I was like, things are going pretty good for me. Like, I think I'm ready. I've watched enough romantic comedies. I think I can put two and two together. I'm pretty sure it's time for me to find my future wife in seventh grade. And I did what any seventh grade guy would do. The first girl that liked me, I was like, that's her. God, you know what I'm saying? Does she go to youth group? Check, right? Check, check, check. And she likes me. That makes it easy. I remember one day I, I mustered up the courage. I, I was right before the last. It took me all day to get the courage. And it's right before sixth period. And I'm like, hey, hey, hey. Would you be my girlfriend? And then all of a sudden, the bell rings. Bing! And I'm like, God, what? No way! This, this is your divine timing right now, God? You know, like, how did it take me so long to get courage? She goes, I gotta go to class. And she runs away, and I'm like, no. And it was like the longest art class that I've ever had in my entire life, right? It's like, this is like a 30-minute class, and I'm like, this is an eternity! I'm dying, I gotta know, I gotta know! The bell rings, I'm stoked. Where is she? Gotta get my answer. I'm pretty sure it's looking up for me. I run out of class, she's not there. Well, I had basketball practice, and I know what you're thinking. You play basketball, you're a little short for basketball, and I'm like, remind you, I'm in seventh grade. I'm this height in seventh grade, guys. Pretty average for where I was going to school. Got basketball practice. I was a power forward, okay? You can laugh now. Like, that's ridiculous. Why would, I'm the size of a basketball, you know what I'm saying? Like, I shouldn't be playing, but it doesn't matter. The point of the story is I'm walking to basketball practice. One of her friends comes by and she's like, hey, I got a letter for you. I'm like, a letter? A love letter? A love letter? I've seen enough romantic comedies. I know this is going to be good. I remember opening up the letter, starting to read it and realizing, I don't think this letter is going to be very good for me. So I found myself going to the, the boy's bathroom and hiding in a stall and reading it. And even though she thought she was letting me down softly, what it felt like was like daggers just ramming into my heart. I was embarrassed. I felt rejected. I felt, I, I just, I didn't, I felt awful. I remember, and this is why this story matters. I remember in seventh grade, taking this letter, ripping it up, throwing it in the toilet, and making a vow to myself. Like, I remember making a vow because of the story. I will never put myself in a place of embarrassment again. If I learned from my father to not fail for the sake of others, then I learned in this moment that embarrassment is harmful to my life, and I'm not going to risk anything. I'm going to either be great at the things that I do or not do it at all. Embarrassment is not going to write my story. Vulnerability? Haha! <laughs> yeah, right! I'm never going to put myself out in an emotional way again. I'm not going to be wounded. I'm going to strive to have people respect me. I'm going to earn respect. I'm going to have power and I'm going to have control. I will be so influential that you cannot abandon me. And I wish that this story just kind of magically disappeared in eighth grade, right? In my ability to grow sideburns and like it would just be like, oh, I'm over that. It wasn't. I just continued and continued and continued. I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of being embarrassed. I was afraid of being vulnerable. And I started to orchestrate my life because of the stories that I had been through. I started to change the way I lived. 
I started to put a pressure on myself and hold myself to a, a standard that was just unreasonable. All of my high school career was essentially built around trying to maintain an image of perfection. Trying to win the approval of every single person that I walked into the room with. I was not going to be abandoned. When I graduated high school, I, uh, my first year out of high school, I became a youth pastor. I was a junior high youth pastor. And then uh, my second year out of high school, I, I took over the whole youth group. So I'm 19 years old, and I wish that those stories of my life were gone at that point, but they weren't. And now I'm in ministry. And let me tell you what happens the first year of ministry that I have. Heroin becomes an epidemic in my city. So I'm like way out of my depth. And for someone that doesn't like to be out of his depth, I was like, I feel like I'm failing every single day of my life. I feel like I'm failing. We had a ninth grade girl get stabbed 21 times at our high school. So I have kids coming in, I have an after school program, I have kids coming up to me being like, what do I do with this? I'm like, I don't know. I feel embarrassed. I'm letting you down. I don't have answers for you. But a 14 year old kid commits suicide at my high school. So I have kids coming to me, wow, what do I do? What do I do? And I remember one night I was just like fed up. I mean, I have this kind of rule, like if you don't know what you're saying, just say it louder. You know, that was like kind of my motto as a youth pastor, as a 19 year old. It was like, hey, I don't know if I have anything prepared tonight, so I'm just gonna yell, right? Like, just like, let's pump it up. And I remember this night vividly, I was like, we aren't gonna save our city if we're hiding the light of Christ in us. We gotta, you know, like, and I'm just like going nuts. I get home and my brother says, did you hear what happened to a friend of mine? A block down the street, my friend overdosed on heroin and died. And this is my first year in ministry. I, I didn't know what to do. This story shaped me. If someone that I strive to be in control, I want to have power over my, my circumstances. I want to fix things. I want to be an example. But all of a sudden, my example wasn't working enough. And these stories just keep repeating and repeating and repeating. And I feel like I'm losing myself and I don't know what to do. When we fail to give Jesus our story, to invite him in, you know, to tell him in the place of prayer the way you think, oh, we miss an opportunity for God to renew something in us, to shape us, to have us see our story the way he sees it, to give perspective. You know what he would say to me if he could go back to me being a, a, a young boy? He would say, yes, the way you live matters. But I am the one that saves people. Your best attempts at perfection will not save people. I save people. So get used to being humble and revealing your failures. You don't need to be afraid of failure. You just need to be okay with repentance. You don't need to be afraid of not knowing everything. You just need to be okay getting in my presence. Your perfection will not save the world. My perfection did save the world. So bring people to me. But I had to go to that place. I had to, I had to give the Lord that story. You know what he would say to me as a seventh grade boy? He would, he would come to me and he would say, I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you. I see you. I know this hurts, but I've got a future for you. 
I care about you. You may think this is your one and only opportunity, but I've got something beautiful for you. I want to write a story for you. He'd see me in, as an 18, 19-year-old pastor and say, you don't have to hold it all together. It's not on your shoulders to save your city. I love your city more than you love your city. Maybe some of us need to be reminded today that your family members that are hurting, your friends that are hurting, your schools that are hurting, Jesus loves them more than you do. He loves them. He's got it. He cares. He's moving. Oh, to the one that can do more than we can ask, think, or imagine. We have the God that's more and greater, but he needs to convince you by you repenting of the way that you see him, by your interpretations of your story. What are you carrying? You have to lay it down. You see, who we are is forged, is made in the way we tell our stories. The danger of not knowing these stories is that it makes us create habits, patterns, and paradigms. And paradigms is a fun big word that you can impress your parents with when we get out of this. But let me break it down for you. Habits are things that you have called helpful to protect you. They are must statements. Anyone have any, I must do this. I have to, anyone ever feel like I have to do something? I have to do this. I have to, I have to do it this way. This is the way I have to do it. Habits are the things that you create to, to just acclimate to the story that you're experiencing. So you might, you might have a habit of being like avoiding risky situations that might cause embarrassment. You might have a habit of putting yourself in positions where you're seen. Patterns are what happen when habits get solidified in your life, become, become foundational in your life. Patterns are, I always find myself in this kind of situation. I'm always the helper. I'm always the one that people go to when they're in crisis. I never, I, I never, it might make you feel like I never get to be blank. I never get to be needy. I never get to have my own. I never get to be helped. I never get to be seen. I'm never admired. You feel these things. This is because habits have formed patterns and a paradigm is simply the way in which you see the world. So when we let our stories be unexamined before God, the Bible says, search me, O Lord. Oh, I want you to know me. The first half hour of my day is me praying to God saying, where is my heart? What's going on? And I just sit in silence. Where am I? What are you doing? What am I feeling? I don't like feelings. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't. It's not like my favorite thing in the world to wake up and just, you know, have a nice little cry session. I don't like that. But I find myself now being like, I want everything that Jesus has for me. And if that means he's going to take me to where my heart is, and where my heart is, is feeling a little bit of pain, then I'm willing to go there so that he can restore that place, and I can walk out redeemed and restored and empowered by his Holy Spirit to walk in authority, upright, made right, righteous, with power and deed. That's what I want. So where is my heart? Because a paradigm is the way in which you've deemed the world working. So you have habits. This is what I must do. Patterns. 
This is who I must be. This is the kind of relationships that I have and a paradigm. This is how the world works. I'm so amazed when I meet seventh and eighth graders and sixth graders even, they're like, this is how the world works. This is it. The world's unfair. Yeah, nothing good ever really happens to me. I'm always alone. Whatever it may be. And I don't say that to belittle that. I'm saying this is act. The reason I'm teaching this is because it starts here. It starts here. Many of us in this room, if we were honest, would say we have a way we believe the world works. My question to you, is that your definition or God's definition? We have created skills to protect ourselves and avoid situations that we've deemed unhelpful and harmful. Did you tell you to have those skills? Or did Jesus? Jesus wants to redeem that. Jesus wants to restore that. And I'm going to close with this. John chapter 8. It's a beautiful story that I think really reveals the invitation of Jesus. It's about this woman. It's really actually about a woman and a man and Jesus and a mob. And sometimes when I read the, the Bible and there's some details that are missing out, I just kind of allow my imagination to speak into it. Now see, Jesus was ministering, and the way the story gets set up is he's ministering. It's right after a festival. And the way the story gets set up is that there is this mob of Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, and they, they throw this woman in front of Jesus, and they say, this woman's been caught in adultery. The law says that she should be put to death. What do you say? To test Jesus. And I was like... I'm reading this passage, and I'm like, how did this happen? What, what was the chain of events that, that, that got this lady thrown before Jesus, probably naked and ashamed, bruised, tired of crying? What, what got her here? And it was like the Lord kind of brought this modern <laughs> version of this story. Like, oh, you know, at a young age, she... She never really felt like she got the affection of her mom. Never really felt seen at home. Her dad was always working and she just learned at a young age that if she acted the right way, knew the right TikTok dances, wore the right makeup, had the right clothes, like she'd get some attention. So she goes through school and she, she learns these ways, these habits of holding herself. And she finds herself in relationships and engagements with people that, that feed that need. I'm insignificant. I don't feel seen. I don't feel loved. So I create a habit in my life of if I want to feel loved, I do this, this, and this, and this. And I find those that are willing to give me love. And it might not be the love that I really want, but it's better than nothing. I don't have it at home, so it's better than nothing. And she kind of lives this life and graduates high school, goes to college, and... I see her this, this morning before the, the festival, the morning before this full citywide party. There's gonna be the best food, the best drink, music. And I see her that night before thinking about going, I don't know. 
I don't know, and usually nothing really good happens after 10 o'clock, right? Like, I don't know if I need to go there. I don't know, I don't know. And then the day of the festival comes and I see her getting ready. Maybe, maybe, maybe that morning she was feeling really low. I don't have any friends. No one likes me. I'm lonely. I want to feel something again. Puts on makeup. Feels a little bit better. Gets her hair done. Feels a little bit better. Goes to the mall and buys a new wardrobe. Feels a little bit better. And she finds herself out at the festival. While simultaneously, at the same time, we see this man working a nine to five, feels a little disconnected, has a couple kids, feels like he's not really getting along with his family, getting lost in work, the pressure of life. Oh, I just gotta hold it together. I just gotta make enough money. But I feel disconnected and he's working late. His wife calls, hey, you're gonna be home for dinner? No, no, I gotta work late. Hangs up the phone, I don't really have to work late. I, I need a break, I need me time, has a habit. I need, I need, I need, I don't feel like my needs are being met. I don't feel like I'm being seen. I don't feel like I'm being loved. I don't feel like I'm being heard. No one's respecting me. So, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go put myself in a situation and, and they find themselves in this festival and they see each other. Oh, and all their unredeemed habits, patterns and paradigms converge in a moment where their desires are met in a way that is destructive. Isn't that what sin is? Counterfeit versions of what you actually desire that rob you, that steal from you, that corrode your heart and soul and mind and strength, that want to take from you, but you can't sometimes see it in the moment. So in the moment, they feel like this is love, this is good, this is what I want. And it leads to an affair to a broken family. We don't even know what happens to this guy. What we do know is there were people waiting to catch her, and so she's caught. Now we're back in the Bible. She's caught, she's thrown before Jesus. And the mob looks at Jesus and goes, what are you gonna say about her? And here's the truth. She did break the law. She did potentially ruin a family. The reality is, is that she very much did something very wrong, very painful to, to a lot of people. What is Jesus going to do? Oh, he kneels down and he writes in the dust. He's slow to speak. And the words that he answers back to the test you without the first stone may throw or you without any sin may throw the first stone and so the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest the accusers walk away you know the word Satan means accuser you know that when, when you are the author of your life you are accountable to what the accuser says about your life but when Jesus is the author of your life he has more authority than the accusations that come against you. No matter how old or how new those accusations. Some of you might have woken up this morning, had a fresh accusation against yourself. Jesus waits in the dust until the oldest to the youngest accusation walks away. He comes down, 
He says, woman, where are your accusers? Oh, they're nowhere. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And this is the invitation that I see in this story. There is safety in being fully exposed before Jesus. He doesn't pick up a stone and try to take your life. He lingers and proves he has authority over accusation. How do you see yourself? How do you tell your story? If you're really honest, where are you right now? The truth is, is we can pretend like we have it all together or we can go like this woman in John chapter 8 before Jesus fully exposed saying, this is me. This is the extent of my life. This is every way, everything that I have experienced. What do you say, Jesus? Because it feels like if it was up to me, I'm done with it. If it was up to the world, they're done with me. What do you say? What do you say, Jesus? And he just waits long enough to prove to you that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he sees you. Most certainly he would have taken off his tunic, covered this woman, and had her walk on her way home. Empowered, knowing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't hold accusation against her, but lets her in her place of repentance walk redeemed, walk empowered. Oh. It matters that we understand that we're shaped by story so that we can begin to live a lifestyle of inviting Jesus in to every moment of our lives. Every place. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed by the way of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we want to be people that are formed into the image of God, that have a resilient faith, if we want to get back to the basics, have an essential Christianity, what that means is we got to get back to the place where we go, I submit all things to Jesus. I come before him unashamed, fully exposed. What are you going to say, Jesus? And what does he do? He waits. He transforms our mind. We see things different and we're able to discern his perfect and pleasing and good will and walk it out. We're able, like the woman, to rise up, to rise, to stand up and walk forward with a new story. Jesus wants to renew our minds that we may know the will of God. He wants to renew our habits, patterns, paradigms, the way we train, the way we tell our stories. He wants to transcend our story. He wants to prove that he's bigger than our story. He, he wants to invite us as a part of his redemptive story, a story that includes all of human history and the future of human history, that we would be a part of the renewal of all things. But it takes us first submitting and, and giving our story to Jesus. The invitation of Jesus to be his disciple is an invitation to submit your personal history, your personality, your emotions, all that you've been through, all that you are, to bring it before Jesus, that he would have it, that he would restore it, that he would empower you and he would send you. It is time for a generation that no longer lives in hiding before God as though he's unkind and doesn't care. Oh, we need it. Our cities need it. Our friends need it. Our schools need it. The whole entirety of this world needs it. Oh, we don't need any more Christians that hide their stuff before God because they're still living in shame. 
We hope you've been inspired by this word. To help awaken your faith on a regular basis, subscribe now so you can be alerted when we have a new message. Thank you so much for listening.